Across the UK, overnights with Martin Kellner. There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico that's where we're going now to Campeche in Mexico, and uh, we say a very warm welcome to our good friend John Bonfilio. John, thanks uh, ever so much for joining us. No problem at all. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Yourself? Warm. The warm in warm welcome <laughs> is definitely how things are how things yeah. are here. Still in the 30s, then, is it? Yeah, the rain came and went, and now we're just sweltering. We're sweating oh, and sweltering. Is what's happening here. Yeah, do you, you do you not like to get out? I mean, presumably early in the morning, it's reasonably pleasant, isn't it? Yeah, and honestly, at this time of day, uh, there's a really nice breeze. It just so happens that I'm uh, stuck in a sealed room uh, because I'm speaking to you, which makes it makes things all the more sweaty. But for sure, out in the evening at the moment, it's actually a really pre- pleasant, uh, dry, oh, breezy, breezy evening. So I'm only really complaining about my own very particular local uh, <laughs> in, in environment. Well, God bless you for uh, for going into your uh, sealed room to talk to us. Now, um, a few days ago, a U.S. senator said that the Mexicans would be living in tents and eating cat food if it wasn't for the USA. I take it these remarks haven't gone. I mean, I know you're not eating cat food, at least I hope you're not. And I take it these remarks haven't gone down particularly well in uh, Mexico. That is something of an understatement, I think, uh, Martin, even by, you know, American standards in terms of saying uh, silly, daft, uh, uninformed, brackets, racist stuff about Mexico. This was a particular uh, low point, which came during a Senate committee hearing, which was discussing budgets for the Drug Enforcement Agency in the U.S. And he didn't just say that, interestingly, about eating cow food and living in tents and how Mexicans should be grateful for the proximity to uh, to the United States, but he also suggested that actually the U.S. should storm the country and stop the, the the cartels. And of course, as you said, that has generated you know huge reaction here. A program, uh, Marcelo Ebrard, the foreign minister, described as being a profoundly ignorant man. Uh, the president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, almost every morning since the uh, since those words were uttered in his dawn briefing, has had to deal with it in some way or other, and has now urged the 37 million Americans of Mexican descent, not in in votes commas, not to vote for people with this arrogant, offensive and foolish mentality. And of course, again, as you can totally imagine, this has generated something of a, in in block capitals, uh, social media frenzy. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, this guy was called uh, John Neely Kennedy. I take it he's not <laughs> he's not one of the Kennedy, uh, you know, no. the famously liberal Kennedy clan from, uh, it's, you know, from. Cape you're totally Jones. right. He's he's not. And actually, it's one of those. The, the press have actually used the name a little bit to generate more column inches than perhaps it deserved, because he is a fairly obscure senator from Louisiana and definitely no relation to the Kennedy political dynasty. Yeah. And uh, I I mean, I also think that uh, in Louisiana, he would need to be very, you know, there are a lot of Latino people. um, I've only been to New Orleans and uh, traveled around a little bit. But, uh, you know, there's no shortage of Latinos that he'll be trying to get to vote for him. 
No, look, throughout the, the U.S., you know, there are immigrant communities, whether recent immigrant communities or communities that go back uh, generations, uh, that are increasingly of, of importance. And they don't all tend to vote Democrat, but a lot of them do. So this is definitely, I suspect the Democratic Party would also be using this as something of a, of a call to those communities. Mm. Interesting also, this particular Kennedy uh, uses a fake accent uh, when he speaks in public. He is, uh, he has... Yeah, had a liberal uh, education. He is one of the wealthiest senators uh, on record, but he deliberately uses a fake Southern accent in order to make himself come, to cro- come across as a little bit more folksy for his uh, for his voters in Louisiana. Blimey! Well, if ever they're recasting Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, it'll be up for a part. I suspect. Yep, absolutely. Outrageous! Absolutely outrageous. Um, tell us now about the. Um, I mean, well, before we leave this story altogether, let's let's say something positive uh, about Mexico. And there are lots of uh, positives, which I know that. I mean, you've chosen to live there, and I know that uh, you know you're in, you're very keen on these. Uh, on these positives being expressed i think it's really it's really important because otherwise you know what we tend to get in in terms of discourse is i mean anywhere in the world right you get things are led with with stereotypes and of course the news cycle is then led with these you know, with these heightened tones which bear no relationship to what is taking place here but generally if you think about mexico unfortunately the stereotypes are you know, the sombreros are characters the te- te- tequila drinking criminal fraternity um, and, and the like, but actually, it is important contextually to, um, to to know and to understand. I think that Mexico, for sure, is one of the most rich culturally, uh, sociologically countries on earth. I mean, it, it's had civilizations way before most other countries. If you count the official languages alone, and there are plenty of others that are not recognised, but you, if you count the official languages in Mexico alone, of course, there's Spanish, but there's another 63 indigenous languages that are in regular. Use here, it's got one of the most diverse cuisines on earth and amazingly resilient people. And for sure, it is a massively blessed country. Interestingly, and perhaps ironically, one of the real negatives that it has and that makes it, it suffer is the fact that it is shares a 2000 mile border with with the USA. And as Mexicans are fond of saying, uh, so far from God and so close to the USA. <laughs> yeah, take that, America. Uh, yeah, tell me. There you go. Uh, Tell me about this uh, plane that crashed in the uh, Colombian jungle. This is one of those stories that gets stranger and stranger. On the face of it, like I think in terms of context, uh, we go back to a few months ago where an indigenous leader in the Puerto Sábalo area of the Colombian Amazon was receiving death threats from organised uh, crime, which we've covered before on your show, Martin. He decided that he, in order to uh, to not be killed, he had to leave. So he went to Bogotá, which is where most, capital city of Colombia, where most exiles go. All roads lead to... Uh, Bogota, in a sense, uh, he got a job, he saved up, and then he sent for his wife and children. On the 1st of May, uh, his wife and, and children left on a flight out of this remote area of uh, the Colombian Amazon. Again, it's really important to contextualize. There are no roads to these places. It is completely inaccessible, and they are, at the moment, right in the middle of uh, the rainy season, which is basically a monsoon. It rains really, really heavily every day. There were seven aboard the light aircraft, the pilot, a passenger, the mother, and the four children, and the plane crashed in the middle of the jungle. Now, these four children, aged 13, 9, 4, and 11 months, were not in the plane wreckage when it was located on the 15th of May. Adults uh, were found dead. Children were missing. 
the searchers then realized, I mean, obviously, you know, by process of deduction, but also because they began to find objects, toys, uh, fruits, improvised shelters on a path that the children were obviously, you know, uh, following to try and get out of the jungle. Now, this on Wednesday becomes a big thing because the Colombian uh, president, Gustavo Pedro, tweets that the kids have been discovered and are safe and well. And then on Thursday, apologizes and deletes the tweet as he says that actually this information hasn't been confirmed or corroborated. And we've had 24 hours of silence uh, ever since. So for sure, you know, a story which begins as being one thing and then morphs almost on a daily basis into being something completely different and is not yet complete. Yeah. So the kids are still missing, basically. Um, I mean, their discovery, again, I think the important thing contextually to remember here is the inaccessibility of this whole area. So it rumors came out that they had been discovered uh, and they were being taken between different places. So almost certainly what's happened is that there is uh, an indigenous search group that has located them. But again, with the in massively inclement weather and almost near impossible uh, communication possibilities and challenges that people face there, right. they just have then fallen off the face of the earth again. So I would I would expect that we would get good news related to you know the rescue of these individuals. But in the movement between point A and point whatever B is, um, then we've certainly lost them for for the moment. But for sure, three weeks, kids, uh, the eldest at the age of 13. I mean, also worth saying, actually, that this is also important uh, in terms of the resilience of these children. Your average 13, 9-year-old, 4-year-old and 11-month-year-old are not going to survive three weeks in the jungle. These kids mm-hmm. were from an indigenous community. So, they, you know, they, they have at least a sense of uh, the where's and uh, whys and wherefores of what to do in these contexts. But still, even by, you know, by those standards, uh, hopefully we hear that they end up coming out alive and OK. But what a story. What a story it is. Yeah. And, and this has been in the British press. So assuming we will get the updates, but we'll, you know, hopefully you can update us as well uh, next week, uh, John. Yeah, we'll do. Just, yeah, just finally on football. Uh, the Football Research Group, CIES, um, has released the ranking of the world's best dribblers, which it's no big surprise, I don't think, that uh, amongst the world's best dribblers are a number of people who play their football in Latin America. Yeah, who uh, uh, emerge from Latin America. So they don't necessarily play their football here. Yeah. They actually have, are Latin American uh, footballers, yeah, the, the International Centre for Sports Study Studies in Switzerland, which uh, started in 2005, has this research group for, uh, group for football. Um, and not only do, does it feature Latin Americans, it is dominated by six of the ten are from uh, Colombia, Argentina, Mexico, and uh, Brazil. And I, I think it's one of those things which, uh, I, to some extent, is something that we know about already is you know footballing cultures and how footballing cultures emerge and evolve and uh, and so on but uh, yeah for um, Latin American youngsters on the streets of uh, Rio or Acapulco um, dribbling is a really important way of of expressing yourself another interesting point about this is um, how this was measured so it was measured across three different um, um, metrics the first one is just straightforward minutes and dribbles so how how many minutes per dribble you footballers engage in the second one is successful dribbles so dribbles against uh, uh, an opponent and the third one is the measure of the the quality of the level of teammates and opponents that 
that you play against. So, yeah, six of the ten uh, of the English representatives, only Jack Grealish gets in, uh, yeah. continuing. You know, again, historically, in terms of we think about footballing cultures, our suspicion of the likes of Jack uh, Grealish uh, and his, you know, his, uh, I mean, less so these days, because, of course, he's, he's a massively fated footballer now for, for Man mm. City. But if you think back, no, it's not so far to the likes of Joe Cole, anybody who dribbled in the UK was definitely looked at, you know, <laughs> given the side eye. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, and the the top, Jorge uh, uh, Carascal, I've probably pronounced that wrongly. No, correct, uh, correct. Oh, excellent. He's number one. Jack Grealish, I can pronounce easily. And, of course, Leroy Sané, who we're all very familiar with, and he was a, a Manchester City player himself. Yep, and then you go through Messi, of course, in yeah. fourth. Ezekiel Barco, Argent- Argentine place for River Plate. I mean, a number of different plays, players there. The other one I think we will be... Uh, will know is uh, Irving Lozano, uh, Mexican place for Napoli. Of course, he's also in the um, in the news a lot at the moment. He's in ninth place. Yeah. Now, yeah, well, well done, Latin America. Although, as you say, not always been fashionable uh, in the UK. It is a bit more now these days, and especially with Pep Guardiola's, you know, the way he plays at Manchester City, who's managed to um, take. Jack Grealish looking a little bit raw from uh, from Aston Villa and has um, has used that dribbling ability to to raise the team one more level really. And uh, we're, we're definitely a long a long way away from Wimbledon of the 80s and the crazy gang and the hoof it up the pitch to the big guy up front. Yes, absolutely. Um, as always, uh, John, thanks uh, ever so much, and, and we'll talk again very soon. No problem, take care. Good man. There we go with John Bonfilio joining us from Campeche in Mexico.